Well, it's, it's awesome to be back with you again. And, and we, we, very much, uh, we very much treasure the partnership that we have with ECC and, and have over the past few years. And yeah, it's, it's great to hear that, that Micah 6 8, that, that you guys are grappling with it, because we should struggle with Scripture. There's a lot of stuff in there that I still like, wait a minute. And it, it is something to be struggled with, but to, to do justice, that means we've got to go where there's injustice. To love mercy. Well, in order to be merciful, that means we're encountering places where it's necessary. All of that involves vulnerability. All of that involves presence and proximity to the problems, the issues. And that means going beyond our comfort most of the time. And thankfully, we have a, we have a pretty great example. I would say Jesus was near the best example that we have for, for doing those things. I, I hope you agree, and that's why you're here this morning. Um, those red letters that are in my Bible here, that's, that, those are big words. Those are big deals. Uh, one of the reasons, and Tim said we've experienced some amazing growth over the last year, because of the, a lot of because of the tornado. Expo- the tornado is in North Minneapolis exposed the economic tornado that had already been going on there. And, and brought a lot of that to light. And as a result of that, people have looked at what we were doing and saying, oh, that sort of looks like it works. We should, we should maybe get on board with that. And so we've added 20 staff to catch up with our capacity um, because our neighborhood is asking us to do more. Our city is asking us to do more. And, and so I'm here to ask you to do more. <laughs> no, that's not specific. This is not an ask. I'm not going to bust out the checkbooks again. Um, but like I said, we have an amazing example. And even, I mean, in the name of your church, Emmanuel, that's about my favorite name of God because it means God with us. Pretty sure that the almighty creator of everything could have figured out a way to bring redemption about without coming down here. He, he did a lot of very creative things. He could have, he could have done that. But he didn't. Why did he move in? He moved into the neighborhood. He created proximity. He entered the pain and the suffering and the temptation around him on his path to redeeming us. So that that first act in the act of redemption was him moving in and coming down. And there's something to be said for that type of proximity and presence, and and that's a that's a theme that that goes throughout Scripture. There's a pattern of entering the pain, a pattern of proximity, and even with that that Micah, it's it's always interesting to see the path of our rules, if you will, starting with the Mosaic laws, right, going back into the early books that are really really exciting to read. That I'm sure you guys are riveted by numbers all the time. <laughs> Diving into Deuteronomy on a daily basis. But those, I mean, those are important. That's foundational. But as we come along, it starts to get whittled down a little bit. You guys notice that? It starts with hundreds of laws. And then by the time it gets to Micah, you know, we're, we're down to about three things. Okay, what's the core? Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. By the time we get to Jesus, he boils it down to one A and one B. 
love the Lord your God. Because every, you know, he gets asked a few times, you know, what, well, what do I need to do to be saved? And specifically the young lawyer, you know, he's, well, you're supposed to love God and love your neighbor. Exactly. Well, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. But he boils it down to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That indicates proximity. That indicates presence. There's a, uh, but when you start getting, and that, that then the, uh, the end to that is relationship. And relationships sometimes get messy. Because as human beings, we're sort of messy. When you start to get to know us. I can stand up here, I can give a great sermon, you have no idea what's going to happen in two hours. When I'm yelling at my kid for doing whatever and whatever, right? You get to know my family, you figure out real quick we're far from perfect. And that sometimes means hurt. And that sometimes means pain. That inevitably will get uncomfortable. There's a, one of our board members about four years ago now was out behind a, a company that he had started and he saw a guy that was doing some dumpster diving. He has no idea what to do. He is, he is in a different world than this guy. So what do you do? There's always that uncomfortable thing. Like you're pulling up to a corner, right? And there's a dude with a cardboard sign. What do you do? There's always that, uh, do I make eye contact? Do I, you know, hand him $10? Do I take him out for lunch? Do I, you know, there's all sorts of things that you can do. It's, it's uncomfortable questions. Be- but sometimes it's very, very simple. He, he worked through his uncomfortable issues and walked up to this man and asked him his name. He affirmed the inerrant dignity of that man, assuming that he is created in the image of God as I was, and to ask him his name or her name is a big deal, an affirmation of dignity. But now you've entered into relationship. Now you've entered into proximity. Now you're starting to enter into that pain because now you start maybe a dialogue and you start learning the story and you start hearing the story and the story breaks your heart and the story compels you though to do something. What compels us to do nothing is insulation and isolation. When you start entering into that pain because of this relationship, it compels you to do something. And so he has been on this journey for about five years with this man, trying to figure out what relationship means between a middle-aged, white, uh, upper-class, very wealthy entrepreneur, businessman, who is driven to make money. He's really good at it. He's been very successful. To a elderly, homeless, struggling with some mental disabilities and legally blind man. Where do you even start to have common ground? But he started with calling us and saying, hey, I'll give you guys some some money per month if if you put him to work on a job site with, with some people. So we did. And this relationship has changed me having been out on site with him for four years and developing a relationship. And it's, it's not, he's not the easiest person in the world to get along with. Neither am I. Um, and so when you get two of those, it's sometimes hard. 
But he started to explore the possibilities. What can I do? He did, he, he's not, my, our, our board member, he's not solving homelessness. But he got to know somebody. He went out and he got to know, again, presence, relationship, entering into it. One of the, one of the coolest, very subtle and small examples of I, that I've seen that in, in Scripture is in Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, there's this idea that Jesus is kind of approaching the end of his sermon here. And there's, there's two lines he's talking about, kind of for the judgment throne. And he says, I'm going to separate sheep from the goats. And goats over here, sheep over here. He says, I'm going to say to the people on my right, you know, blessed are you coming to the kingdom for you. Right? You guys know that. Fed me when I was hungry. Gave me something to drink when I was thirsty. Came to visit me in prison. Healed me when I was sick. I was naked. He gave me something to wear. And then the, 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 the cool thing about this is people are sort of surprised, right? They're like, when, when did we do that? When, when did we see you thirsty and sick enough? And Jesus says something very interesting there. He says, whatever you did for one of the least of these. Not the least of those. Right? I think it's very subtle, but it, that indicates proximity. That indicates presence. That indicates that I'm not going like, yeah, you helped those people over there. Good for you. Went over it. No. The least of these, Jesus is indicating his own proximity there. His own presence. It's not like Jesus isn't right here. It's not like Jesus is everywhere. But, but it's very indicative of Jesus' passion and heart for need and for pain. And us allowing ourselves to have our hearts broken by what God breaks, but what breaks God's heart. That, that vulnerability is what draws us closer to him. I think, I think by understanding our, our friend that comes out on sight still, I understand Christ better. I know Jesus better because I have a relationship with him. Because every time I drop him off on the corner and I ask him where he's going, he's going out to fly the sign on the corner after we drop him off from work. And, and uh, every time I'm like, all right, man, we'll see you Saturday. And he goes, Lord willing. <laughs> Lord willing, you'll see me. You know why? Because he is desperate for Jesus to come back. He knows Jesus better than I do. Because I've got insulators. What do we need God for? We got stuff. We got things that cloud. You know, we, we talk about this money thing. And money isn't a bad thing. Stuff is a bad thing. One of our, our board members there, he's a very wealthy guy. And he's very intelligent. He's really, really good at making money. And that's great. Nothing wrong with that. But when Jesus talks about money, careful. Careful. And when the rich men walk away, he's like, it's really hard for a rich man to get into heaven. Because we can, in, we can use it to insulate with stuff. And, and we don't need God. He needs Jesus. Every day, he is desperate for Jesus to return because he knows that it's not about this life because heaven forbid it be about this life. This life has not been fun for him. And so there are examples of Jesus going into these lives and, and, and going into lives and, and going places he shouldn't have gone. When we get into the Last Supper in John, 
when Jesus is kind of repeating over and over again, if you love me, you're going to do what I did. You're going to go where I went. You're going to say what I said. You're going to be with who I was with. It's a, it's a powerful last little sermonette he's got there in front of the guys. But he also set the example. His actions, I think, are equally as important as his words because his actions are extremely intentional. You know, I, I've heard a lot of stories about back, you know, the Samaritans were sort of the half breeds, right? They weren't quite Jewish, which made them kind of outside. That made them those people. And people would walk around Samaria in order to get places. In John 4, Jesus goes right through. It says he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, he's tired. He experienced being tired and thirsty. So this woman comes up to draw water, and Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Right? And this is what's great about John, is he's got these little parentheses around verse 8 that are saying that disciples, they were gone. They went in to grab some food. They're hungry. <clears throat> Samaritan woman said to him, you're, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for something to drink? And then again, John gives us a little commentary here for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Not only was she a Samaritan, those people, she was a woman. He was a rabbi. Distance. Insulation. We don't talk to those people. So she's shocked. One, she's showing up at noon. Usually when people go get water, they go much, much earlier. Not at noon. She was alone. She was like, those people within the town. She had the scarlet letter. No one talks to this woman. So she's got like, well, it's three strikes right there. Three strikes, she's out. And Jesus comes around her though and he meets her and this is, this is foundational to kind of what Urban Homeworks is doing is felt need. Jesus knows, we know that a deepest need is for that hope in Jesus Christ. For the redemption and the grace that Jesus provides. But he doesn't just come out and say, you know what you need? Grace. You know what you need? Redeeming. Forgiving those sins. He starts by asking her if he can have a drink of water. He meets her at her felt need. She was thirsty. That's the reason she was coming to the well. He meets her at her felt need. The need that she needs immediately addressed. In order that he might lead her to her deepest need. Because then he starts going on now. And Jesus answered her. If you knew the gift of God. And who it is that asks you for a drink. You would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. And then she starts looking around like. Dude you got nothing to draw with. How are you going to get that water? But, you know, he leads her to this place where she's craving it. She wants it. She desires it. And so there's, there's this idea of human need and meeting people at the human need. I, I, I use this kind of analogy in, in the first service, too, about 
Uh, there's a little boy in our neighborhood. I live in North. There's a little boy got shot on Wednesday morning. Five-year-old little boy. Um, and there's a lot of outrage going on about that right now, too, because he's the second, five, second under five-year-old to, to be killed in the last six months. Other people were the intended target, and the kids got caught in the crossfire. It's unacceptable, right? It's a stupid problem to have in a community. But, and, and right now, that family, we know they need the hope of Jesus Christ. We know that they need the grace and the redemption and the hope and all of the things that Jesus can provide, the peace that Jesus can provide. But right now, they need to be embraced. And we need to show them authentic, Christ-centered love. We need to meet them at a felt need to bring them to a place of redemption. But again, this means proximity. And it means presence. There's a, there's a fundamental and vital question that we often struggle with, though. And that is, uh, how do you make big life decisions? Do you make it based on feelings? Because you, you're right, sister, when we, when, we were, when we were worshiping here, God made feelings. We are emotional creatures given to us by God. And we express those. But can we make all of our decisions based on feelings? No. Where are you going to live? Where are you going to lay your head at night? Where are you going to raise your children? Where are you going to send them to school? Um, Where are you going to put yourself? What's your career? All of these paths... How do we make those decisions? I would submit that as a whole, we as a church make the decisions the same way everybody else does. Because statistics don't lie. You know, 50% of marriages within the church end in divorce. 50% of marriages, culturally speaking, throughout the rest of our country end in divorce. That tells me that we're using similar criteria for who to marry, how to marry, what the feelings are. And, and a lot of, and those of you who have been married for any, anywhere longer than like a week, know that <laughs> there's, a, there's a funny story one of my retired guys told one time, like asking a, a couple that have been married for 60 years, you know, did, did you ever go through a day and think about divorce? And she's like, divorce? No. Murder, yes. <laughs> it's hard. Love isn't this fancy little decision and, and you can't fall in, in, in love and out of love and, and all these things. You're going to fall out of love if you've been wearing longer than a week. If it's based on the movie The Notebook. <laughs> or some like, I, I don't know, it's the only romantic movie I can think of. But it's, we have the same criteria for making decisions as the world does so that when we get similar results and when we see communities the way that they are, it's as a result of the church making decisions in ways that maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we should have different criteria 
there's a there's a, a missionary couple that my wife learned some some prayer resolution some some stuff from. But they they were very inspiring people. They raised their kids in the jungles of Colombia, and their whole family was like, now they're not going to get a good education, and you're going to ruin your kids' lives by. They raised them in the jungle, and their kids were both Rhodes Scholars and attended the finest universities on this planet. Our criteria should be different. Safety and comfort, prosperity, these things have never been conditions of the kingdom of God, ever. If they were, the disciples probably would have lived a lot longer than they did. Paul would have lived a long, full life, right? Most of the stuff he wrote was from prison. Not the funnest place ever, I heard. We are to evaluate something different. So when we actually read Jesus' words, he's telling them in the Last Supper. He's telling them throughout the time, like, listen... Let's just get this out of the way. You're probably going to die. They're probably going to kill you. He even told Peter, after he came back from the dead, you know, Peter jumps off the boat, swims in, Jesus cooks him breakfast, and then he pulls him aside, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And then he goes on to describe how much Peter is going to love him, because Peter, eventually, you're going to die for me. John writes that in there as in the end of that commentary again, John's little parentheses to say Jesus was saying these things to indicate to Peter how he would die. But we insulate ourselves from these things a lot of times. And again, the, the, the decisions we make have ramifications for our faith. My faith is stronger for knowing people that are not like me. And people that push me to understand some of the things that I'm even saying. It's not like I'm not struggling with this stuff, too. When a little boy gets shot 15 blocks from my house, that makes me fear for my son. But that affects me. I got skin in the game. I want to be part of the change. It's, where, it's the reason I live where I live. I work where I work. It's the reason I love my neighbors. It's the reason I am where I am. Because I want my son to see what I do. And I want him to be raised in a place where he understands faith hurts. If you're going to serve Christ, there's a good chance it's going to mess up your life. But it's worth it in the end. That's what he promises. It is going to be uncomfortable. You're going to hurt. You're going to lose. You're going to get broken into. You're going to be, feel violated. But that's what I've called you to. The danger is insulation. The danger is isolating ourselves. The danger is retreating. And I told the story, and I think I was corrected in the first service, too, by someone who was 
at the Twin Stadium yesterday, and I called it the Legends Club. It's not the, I think it's the Legacy Club is what he, he pointed out to me. But do you know one of the first things that happened when they started building the Twins Stadium was there were some folks, not everybody, but there were some people that's like, oh, we have to move Mary's place now. Because we don't want all of the people sitting in the Legends Club having to look across the street and see homeless people walking up and down the street. Insulation. Separation. We, we put you know, big sound walls along the highways and sink the highways way down. And I understand reasons for that and noise reduction and all of these things. But literally, you can drive from way out of the Twin Cities. You can drive right downtown to your high-rise and you have never seen a poor person. We can insulate and isolate ourselves from the pain to the degree that we can sit around and kind of complain about it but not have anything to do with it because we don't understand what the issues are. And in order to understand the problem, you have to sort of experience the problem. If you want to be a part of the solution, you have to understand what's going on in the community. You have to understand the systems in place and the, the generational systems that have been in place that have pushed people to where they're at. And the, the, the generational sin that is so prevalent in places where there is a lot of pain. So entering the pain is hard. It's not an easy thing to do. Jesus never called us to easy. Jesus never called us to comfort. Uh, there's a lot of issues. Urban Homeworks isn't the only place doing awesome stuff. We're, we're addressing the fundamental issue of place, of home. Giving someone an address is a, that goes a long way to providing stability for families. If we can provide stability for families, we can provide, statistics show us, a better education for children. If we can provide a better education for children, their economic future is brighter. Not all of them. We can't save everybody. We can make a little dent. But we're not, that's not the only issue. There's the human trafficking issue. There's poverty issues all over the world. There's extreme poverty all over the world. There's orphan, there's widow, there's elderly that are isolated and alone too. There's pain all around us. The issues are huge. But, but, but like my buddy who just got to know this guy that was back in the dumpster, he's not knocking out homelessness. That's exactly where Christ would have him. Exactly what... John Stossel actually did a, a, a report, and this is like eight years ago now or something like that, but it always stuck with me because he studied happiness. It's fascinating. Anybody see that one? It was years and years ago. Basically what happened, he took a bunch of people that were clinically depressed, chemically imbalanced, were on medication for this depression, right? And he took them all out of their little environments and he said for, and I forget, a week or two weeks all you're going to do, we're going to set up the time for you, you're just going to volunteer you're going to go in, you're going to tutor some kids you're going to go to a homeless shelter and you're going to hang out with these folks and you're going you're to serve them dinner then you're going to eat with them and then you're going to and he had them give their time away 
You know what happened after that period? Every single one of them said the same thing. I've never felt better in my life, and I am no longer taking my medication. <laughs> sort of a surprise. He said he was surprised. That shouldn't shock us. That's what we were designed to do. That's what we're called to do. There's, when, you, when you stop thinking about yourself and start pumping into others, it feels pretty good. And thankfully, we know why. In Galatians 2, or excuse me, Ephesians 2, when I was a little kid, the foundational verse for evangelical Christianity has been, in, in my experience, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For as by grace you have been saved, through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Until I was about 20, I thought that's, that was, well, that's Ephesians, that's the whole thing. If there's any English professors or grammar people, who are, that's, not the, that's the middle of the paragraph, Right? The end thought, the last sentence, verse 10, reads, For you are God's workmanship, created by God in Christ Jesus to do good works. You're not saved by it, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. And, and, and as those people found out that we're on pills, if you start to do that, you start to get out of yourself, get away from those isolation and insulating Things, the stuff, the money, toys, all, all of these things that are all about me, and you start doing for others, that's what you were designed to do. God's workmanship. You were created to do good works. And when you're doing what you were created to do, that's true joy and true fulfillment. But, it's not easy. And it is messy. Jesus and Paul, the, the guys who wrote kind of the rest of the books following here, they promise you it's going to hurt. They promise you you're going to lose something. So what does it mean? So now what? Some of you have to move. Some of you have to quit your jobs and go do something else. Some of you have to walk next door and get to know your neighbor. Take that sucker literally. I, not everybody is called to move out into North Minneapolis. But until the church is committed to living in proportion in North Minneapolis, as out here, those issues are going to remain. We don't have a sin problem in North Minneapolis. We expect sin. We have a saint problem. We have a saint problem in America. Because if this is true, and it's not happening, we don't actually believe it. We don't actually believe that Jesus said these things as the best way to live. Otherwise, I think North Minneapolis would look different. I think that the statistics would show that by and large Christians, when it gets hard, stick around. Unfortunately, the statistics are the opposite. Christians are the first ones to go when things get hard. We need different criteria. 
to make our decisions. We need Christ criteria. We need to enter the pain. We need to follow the example of Emmanuel and be God with us. Be with these. And stop with the those. One of the most prevalent emotions that human beings struggle with and one of the most powerful tools of the enemy is fear. We all fear. I fear. Courage is simply the management of fear. I have to rely on the Lord for my children. Because I realize, and no matter where you are, safety is an illusion, by the way. People tell me that, oh, there's no way you're going to send your kids to North Minneapolis schools. Yeah, I am. Well, they're going to get shot. They're going to, you know, all of these things. I'm like, where is every single school shooting happened? You don't see city schools people getting shot up. That's in the burbs, in the rural. There's pain here. There's pain there. We are to enter that pain, though, in order to do justice, to love mercy, we need to go where there's injustice. We need to go where mercy is needed. In order to fulfill the commandments, we are to storm the gates of hell. Jesus told us that, and, and announced about us that the gates of hell will not stand against us. That indicates an offensive. When we're storming gates, that means the enemy's back in the castle. We're taking the sucker down. Our priorities need to be different. We need to enter the pain. We need to stop with the isolation. And it's, I promise you, along with these guys in here, I promise you it's going to hurt. I promise you it's going to be inconvenient. I've never had anybody ask me anything at a convenient time. <laughs> oh, yeah, i got nothing but time. No, I'm going to be late for something, and I don't have time to do this. I don't have time to do that. i got to get Gabe to soccer. i got to do what. It never happens conveniently. But like I said, Jesus, the illustration he uses at this, the foundational principle of being a neighbor is that Samaritan who was on his way somewhere, and you know he was late for something. Because he picked this dude up and took him to an inn and paid for everything and all of that. Being a neighbor is inconvenient. Entering the pain hurts. There's actually a syndrome called compassion fatigue syndrome. And we've diagnosed most of our staff with this. Mercy. Because when you enter the pain of people, when you associate yourself with people that are there, you take it on. And it becomes your hurt and your pain. And it should. That's the example that Emmanuel set for us. Through his life, through his words, and then through ultimately his death. Thank you guys for what you're doing already. There are a lot of ways to get involved. But... We have to let go of ourselves and we have to look through Christ's eyes at our society. We cannot go based on our feelings because our feelings will deceive us every time.
when it comes to making hard decisions that may compromise my own comfort, safety, and all of that. <coughs> Trust him with that. That's the promise we fall back on. He will never leave. And it doesn't mean you won't feel like it, but he won't. And he's faithful. And when you begin to risk, you will know your God better than you ever did before. And you will see him work more powerfully than you ever had before. Thank you guys for what you're giving already. God bless you guys. Now breathe. Everybody breathe. Thank you, John, for coming in and sharing. I like to be challenged. That's a good thing to be challenged. Now what? Still can be overwhelming, and, and what we want to do as a team, what we want to do as a church, is help point you where to go when you leave those things. Because these, these things that we're talking about are overwhelming. They're huge, but we serve a bigger God. We serve a bigger God. One of the things that Chris always mentions um, frequently as a church is uh, this whole pathway language that regardless of where you are in your faith, if you're just new to the Christian faith, if you've been walking faithfully for 50 years, we still want you to grow. We still want you to take, um, take steps closer to your Savior. Taking that same pathway language and applying it to Micah 6.8 in our response, regardless of where you are, we want you to take steps. And it's going to look differently. Not everybody's called to North Minneapolis. Not everybody's called to move. Not everybody's called to quit their job. That's the beauty of the church. But we should be doing something. Okay, one last thing before I pray and close and we head out. Is if you just pull this out. It's an insert. Your bulletin. Take a look at it when you want. These are just a few, a very few um, ways for you to take steps. Regardless of where you are. Some of you might just want to be exposed more to these things. That's where you're at. That's fine. Take a step. Learn more. Be exposed to what's going on uh, with, with human trafficking. Be exposed to what's going on in North Minneapolis. That's fine. Some of you want to go a little deeper. Some of you maybe want to get your hands dirty a little bit. And, and you want to be engaged with the issue. What are some seasonal ways that I can, seasonal steps I can take to do that? To respond to this whole Micah 6-8 push. Visit Mexico, visit Haiti, serve at Urban Hallmarks every quarter like we do. And some of you, maybe you're at, you know what, I want to dive as deep as I can. I want to walk with. What are some ways you can do that? And these are just a few. Okay? But I want to encourage you as you go forth that we serve a bigger God. Okay? He's not asking you to do it by yourself. For us to do it as one church. Okay? We serve a bigger God. And that's where the encouragement is as we go forth. So let's pray. We'll be on our way. God, thank you for today. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for being way bigger than all of the mess that we find ourselves in, that you call us into, God. Thank you that you're bigger than that. Um, following you is not easy. And if it is, Lord, we know that we should maybe question what we believe and how we respond. God, I pray that you will, uh, right now as we go, give us a vision to see Lord, um, what you would have for us.
that it's oftentimes easy to see what that is. It's hard to follow because you live in fear. Pray that you give us the courage, the boldness to follow where you're leading, wherever it may be. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you love us. We ask all these things in your holy name.